Welcome to the Progression Health Podcast. I am here with Natasha Barnes and John Flagg. Natasha, would you like to introduce yourself and then John, and we'll get into uh, our strength chat discussion for this episode. Sure. Um, I'm Natasha Barnes. I am a chiropractor, rehab professional. Um, I'm a power lifter and I'm also a climber. Brilliant. Awesome. John. My name is John Flagg. I am friends with Natasha. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I have admired her climbing and athletic prowess from afar because we've never been able to meet. It's one of those things that's always interesting about internet friends. Uh, I actually got to meet Jared Maynard for the first time this past weekend, guys. It was amazing. Uh, but I am an athletic trainer. I am also a rehab professional, and I work specifically with powerlifters, and I'm a powerlifter myself. Great. A strong, strong powerlifter. And yeah, I like you think I'm getting there. So correction from the last episode, you actually squat like 720 and you're Natasha's friend, but you're not my friend. I'm still working on that. I'm trying to get into a circle. <laughs> so, One more episode, Ross. One more episode and we're good. We're tight. The quote is two episodes. All right. So we were just saying off air that Natasha had a powerlifting meet. So tell us about how that went, um, what you learned, and then what uh, someone could expect on their first time competing on the platform. Yeah, sure. It went pretty well. Um, I think it's hard to control everything going into a meet. Um, I started with a new coach, so also just sort of like figuring out programming and like what works for me. So this was a good experiment for that. Um, but yeah, it went pretty well. I was just telling you guys that uh, my deadlift was the thing that I was the most excited about. It wasn't going that well in training, but it showed up on meet day, which is what matters. Um, and matched my deadlift PR at a lighter body weight and everything that I did at the meet was uh, body weight PR. So that's pretty cool. I'll take that as a big win. And um, I'm so stoked that I'm already signed up for my next meet. So <laughs> uh, yeah. And if people want to compete, um, sometimes I get clients that get like powerlifting curious and they're always like curious about powerlifting competitions. Um, and but like very intimidated and I have to say that like powerlifting meets are like some of the most supportive environments like everybody's stoked for you it doesn't matter if you're squatting an empty bar um or if you're squatting 700 pounds like people are are stoked they're hyped um everybody's supporting each other um everybody's looking out for each other in the warm-up room at least at all the meets that I've been to. Um, and it's generally just like a really, really good time. And it's also fun to just see everybody else compete and um, absorb the stoke. And um, yeah, they're just generally fun. So if anyone is like curious about a meet, you don't have to wait until you're strong enough. You don't, you shouldn't be intimidated. Um, they're just a good time. And um, you don't have to be strong enough for one, like just sign up for one, get your first one out of the way. Cause you're probably going to be nervous anyway. Uh, go nine for nine. I handled a client this weekend who it was his first meet. Um, and our goal was just go nine for nine, like see how he responds to that environment. Um, see how the training worked out for him. And it worked out beautifully. Like he did his first meet. He um, had a goal to get a thousand pound total. He got that. He went nine for nine and he also won his age category. So it was all around successful for him, but we just approached it as like, Hey, this is your first seat. We're not going to do anything crazy. We're just going to like, see how it goes, see how you like it. And um, he's actually signed up for his next one already too. So. Yeah. 
Perfect. That's uh, my experience as well of competing, even though I've only competed once. I, I feel like Charles competed a lot, but everybody just gets it. They're just like, we're here to get stronger, hit some PRs, hopefully, uh, and it's extremely uh, supportive. So it's like, it's understandable that people are a little bit nervous or afraid to compete for the first time. But uh, once you get there, it, it just it's all conducive to you doing your best. And it's a really great environment, just like you say. And I'll tell you what, if you're if you're going to go to do your first meet, if you're going to go and, and put yourself out there, let the people around you know, and, and this is a really important thing. You will be celebrated so much by people in the warm up room. They will ask if you need some help because it can be a lot. Like you've got weigh-ins and you've got warm-ups and like, when do I warm up? And when do I, who, do, whose platform can I go over to? Just literally walk up to a group of lifters and be like, Hey guys, this is my first one. What do I do? And if you don't have a coach, if you don't have anything, more than likely somebody's going to walk over as a coach and help you. And you're going to have a ton of athletes surround you and help you. And man, when people find out it's your first meet, they all cheer louder. I've had anything from my eight-year-old daughter lifted in her first competition to I've had an 82-year-old lifter that it was her first meet. And you want to talk about the cheers. When they find out it's the first one, you'll be celebrated. You will be supported. You will be heroed the entire time. Yeah, it's truly supportive. Like even this last weekend in the warm-up room, like I'm, it was my 10th powerlifting meet actually, but So I like, I know what to do in meets, but just going in the warm-up room, there were coaches, other people's coaches there. This was my first meet handling myself, actually. Um, But there were other people's coaches there who were like, hey, don't worry about it. You're lifting today. Let us load up the weights in the warm-up room. Like, you're lifting. You sit down. We'll load it up. Just tell us what you want. Like, they were super helpful, and they weren't even my coach, you know? So super supportive environment. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody gets it. I actually met a guy on uh, meet day, and he was like, how about you record for my lifts? I'll record for yours. And he was like cheering me on. And it was like, you know, he gave me a lift home. It was epic. And it was like, it's undescribable the feeling backstage before you're about to go and lift and you kind of, you get amped up and you're just like that anticipation between, okay, I'm, I'm soon going on here, but, uh, you know, you're, you're warmed up. It's, it's all that feeling was like, epic. you know, it's like you're going out for battle or you're ready to perform very very hard to like recreate that but it was like such a good feeling then you come off and you know like you know uh kind of win lose or draw when you walk off the platform after you feel like accomplished that you like just did something challenging and it's just really like a good feeling so you're making me want to sign up for another meeting my plan is to do one next year so I hey, stay sign, true up to march. sign up for march <laughs> Where, where's that on uh old school iron it's in Vacaville, March 11th and 12th, and it's supposed to be a good one. And there's still spots open. Just saying. Right. <laughs> I'll have to get on it. You can so, come too, John. What's your date of birth, Ross? I'll do it for you. Uh, 92, 28th of June, 92. There we go. Get you a little membership card. Not a problem. Now I have everything I need to, to sign you up for your next meet. Here we go. Oh. I'm getting peer pressured into doing a meet. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this is your, that was your 10th meet, Natasha. So what did you learn uh, this time out compared to before? And also, can you explain a little bit about, uh, you said like weight PRs. So is a PR just not a PR? So it, they're not like PRs in that they are the heaviest I've ever lifted, period. Because um, I have lifted heavier before but I haven't lifted that heavy at this light of a body weight. So I did drop 
down a weight class. Um, and these are the heaviest numbers I've hit at my current body weight. Yeah. Um, and probably the, the biggest thing that I learned for this meet was, uh, this is the first time I handled myself. So being able to like, usually my co like my coach would be there and I just turn into a robot and do what he tells me to do. Uh, but this time I actually had to like, you know, plan my warm ups and like make sure that I was timing myself correctly. Um, make sure that I like went over to the judges table and told them the right numbers to hit um, and all of that. And I actually did get a little flustered after, like after you lift, you're kind of like, oh my God, like you can't think straight a little bit. So going over to the judges table and trying to remember my numbers off the top of my head was a little bit challenging. So I might just have them written down next time. <laughs> yeah, pre-planned in advance. So John, would you recommend that if someone's to do a meet that they have a coach, is it like mandatory or what are your thoughts on that? I don't know if it's mandatory. Some some level of prep is typically typically pretty good, like doing a little bit of research on the rules. I, I, you should understand the rules. Like read your federation's rule book uh, as as best you can. There's plenty of resources out there to ask questions around that stuff. Uh, but for your very first one, many many times you will just kind of get adopted by by people there. If you want it to go super smooth and decrease some of that anxiety. Hiring a coach is a great move, especially somebody with a track record of being able to handle well at meets and handle beginners well at meets, because that can be a little bit different feel than if they're used to handling like national level lifters, because it's just a different feeling around it. So you don't have to, it's not mandatory, but having that as an option is, is help. It will contribute to the day going a little bit smoother. Yeah. It takes a bit of the guesswork out of it. And, um, what are some of the real differences to be aware of? I, I was thinking it's like your pause on the bench, complete, come to a complete stop. Deadlift, it's just one continuous movement and, and squatting is squat to parallel. But is there anything more outside of that that I'm leaving out? Well, so the bench, I think, is the one that, that is the most varied. Squat's pretty similar outside of maybe some of the equipment used. So like uh, very specifically speaking, um, USPA versus USAPL. USAPL uses a power bar across all the lifts, but USPA, if it's available, they'll use specialty bars. So they'll use a squat bar, which is actually behind me right now, which is 55 pounds. It's thicker. It's longer. It's stiffer. They'll use a normal power bar for bench. They'll use that, that slinky of a Kabuki deadlift bar for deadlifts. So it's, it's different equipment in some cases. My next meet uh, in November is a WRPF meet. They're going to use a monolift. So I'm going to be, I'm not going to have to walk anything out. But from just a basics perspective, bench tends to be the one that's a little different. Some federations, you, your feet need to be flat. Some they don't. Some your head has to stay in contact with the bench. Some they don't. Uh, I actually, there's a local federation around here, 100% raw. It's not local. They're a world federation, but they're concentrated quite a bit around here. They don't have a start command on bench. You unrack and you can just, you can literally unrack and bring it straight down to your chest. The first time I spotted in that federation, I got absolutely terrified. I went to hand off and I thought I dropped it on somebody. But their their commands are just press and rack for squat or for uh, for bench. So there's there's different rules between them. Some of them are nuanced and some of them are really obvious. But especially for your first meet, don't even worry about those parts of it. 
on picking like what federation you're going to go to. Pick one that's close to you. Pick one your friends are going to do. Snag the rule book online and read it front to back. It, it's powerlifting. It's not that difficult of a sport to understand. And and then go for it. Yeah. So Natasha, with your uh, client who it was his first meet, did you have to coach him on those little details a lot? Was there like much instruction you had to give or was it a pretty straightforward process for him to figure it all out? I mean, there's a couple of things to consider. So like, obviously you should know your Federation's rules and be like competing to those standards or um, training to those standards for the competition. So like making sure you're hitting depth on a squat, making sure you're pausing your comp bench, um, you know, deadlifts pretty straightforward. Um, and then as we get closer to the meet, like typically three weeks out, um, practicing commands, either like having someone like tell you the commands at the gym or um, just mentally thinking about them and imagining the commands. Cause I think that's one of the things that is really different for a lot of people. They're not used to all of the commands. Um, and for squat, like you, you know, you can unrack and um, step back and get into your, your stance, but you have to wait for the start command. And then um, when you stand up, you actually have to wait for the rack command. And a lot of people are just so juiced and amped from whatever happened in that squat. Like sometimes they just automatically step forward. And, um, you know, if you hit a PR and you step forward, that doesn't count in the meet, sadly. So, um, so you have to, you have to practice those commands so you don't get into the habit of like, you know, immediately stepping forward into the rack. So you don't do that at the meet. And then same thing with bench. There's a lot of commands. There's like a start command. There's a press command. There's a rack command. Um, and then for deadlift, it's just down. Um, so you just have to hold it at the top until they say down, which usually isn't that long of a hold. But um, just getting familiar with that because it's not normal. Like in training, you're not waiting for someone to give you commands. So um, I'll have my clients like practice that a little ways out from the meet so that they can just kind of drill it in, especially if they're new. Yeah, it's actually not as bad as as it sounds like, as in from whatever style of training you do, it's not too much of a change, like a pause on bench and just it's a little bit of awareness that you can train for, like you say, three weeks out. Um, mm-hmm. So just something I'm thinking of with the training for a meet. So is it the case that uh, the PRs you hit in training, the numbers you hit in training, I think this is something I heard before, so maybe it's like a myth, but uh, you will hit less on meet day than you will in training or is it vice versa or what's the experience so for example right uh you bench you know uh 225 in training should you expect to bench the same more or less on meet day i think it's hard hard to know because you don't know how you're going to respond to the competition environment you know and you don't know how you're going to feel day of the meet like I don't train early in the morning, but I compete in flight A usually, and that's earlier than I normally train. Um, There's a lot of factors. Um, I think, you know, if the training works really well and everything goes like the stars align, like hopefully like you're able to do more in a meet than you did in training, but sometimes that doesn't always happen. Um, And I've had meet prep where I did more in my prep than I did at the competition for one reason or another. Um, I think if you are used to, using like RPE or RIR, like auto-regulating your training, it's a little bit easier to like accept that and and recognize that. But um, yeah, I think it, it can be variable. It depends on lots of different things. I agree. And just to add to that, like you asked earlier about, you know, having a, the benefits of having a coach or something like that. 
Um, for your first meet, I, I typically tell people the same thing Natasha just said. Like, if you're familiar with RPE or something like that, play it safe, build a total, go nine for nine, have a blast. Like, you're going to have technical faults. My second meet ever, I smoked my opener and took a step before anybody said anything. Like, I've, I've seen it on the national and international stage where people beat commands or, or forget what they're doing or something like that. It happens to all of us. But when it comes to like, game day stuff, I have noticed trends long-term with athletes that some of them are just gamers. Some of them come out there and they're, they outperform every indicator that you had, but they do that consistently enough where I can start saying, okay, cool. When meet day happens, this is the effect of a taper for you. Like this is what it looks like, but it takes three, four five meets together to figure that out. Some people, it, it's four o'clock in the afternoon and their meets four o'clock in the afternoon. And they're just consistent as, is the day is long training looks like the meet day looks like everything else. And there's other people that they have decreased performance on meet day, just like people who are bad test takers. Like we, some of us just have our tendencies. And then I know with that athlete, all right, cool. We're going to blow out the gym. They're going to kill it, but I might have to drop by 5%, 10% for meet day. But that's consistent. If it's consistent, then I can still hit meet PRs. Then we can still build totals because here's the key. If you're going to do powerlifting long-term and it is something important to you, the gym total doesn't matter as much as the meet total does. If you want to build that over time and you can figure out those trends with athletes or yourself if you track that stuff and and really start to, to look at those pieces. So what I'm hearing is that uh, competing is a skill in and of itself. So separate from training. So that's like kind of going along that line of thinking. Is it possible to cre- like recreate the intensity? Obviously not a hundred percent of a meet day, but some level of it in training, like, you know, get the music up loud, get super focused, maybe get a buddy to like hit the commands with you. Is that like a good approach to, uh, to prep for a meet day? Something like that where you up the intensity in preparation for the meet. Natasha, do you want to hit that one? Go ahead, Natasha. Um, I try to com- to train as like zen as possible most of the time because it's not really sustainable to get like amped up all the time for training and like actually like sometimes it can be not good to do that. Um, sometimes if I feel like I need to tap into that a little bit, like me personally, like I'll have like one or two sessions you know, in the week before, two weeks before the meet where I will, like, we're going to get some caffeine, we're going to blast the music, my friends are going to be there, we're going to do commands, we're going to, like, go for it. Um, I did that this time because I felt like it had been a while since I've done a meet, and I wanted to, like, tap into that a little bit. But I don't know, I feel like it's probably going to depend on the person if you want to do that or not. And, like, I don't know, what does John have to say about that? So there's a an emotional state of the meet that I think is hard to recreate, um, just because having a ref in front of you refs on each side, having to go through weigh-ins, having a crowd, not having a crowd, like depending on what the venue looks like um, certain ones having smoke machines and lights and the DJ, some not like those are all going to change. What I will say though, is uh, if you want to recreate something like this, I find it, I find the social aspect to be the thing that, that really needs to be dialed in. And that takes a crew. Now I'm going to, I'm about to be really, really critical of, of some power lifters right now. And I understand that, but the, the new generation of come in, put my phone up, put my headphones in, 
talk to no one is is that you can't simulate meet day with your own individual intensity having a crew talking to people being social having 10 to 15 people that all decide like yeah this is going to be our heavy day before the meet we're all going to come in wear our singlets like blast the music talk shit like <laughs> share our gummies share our sour patch kids or whatever it is that, that we're going to do and and make a day of it that's what is going to create more of like a meat like energy than trying to, you know, bring the ammonia and turn on your favorite tunes and, and do it all by yourself. So for me, that's one piece of powerlifting that's slowly starting to go away that I'd really like to come back as the old crotchety man in the room right now. But if you want to recreate meat day, you, you got to have friends to do it with you. you just got to have friends to do it with you. So that that's my thought on it. Yeah, yeah I, totally, I agree with that. I like that having friends around it makes the training environment so different. And that's what happens on meet day. There's so many people around you. So. Yeah, because your energy might be low and theirs might be high. You balance it out or vice versa. So, yeah, it's essential to have uh, that support. Um, so something I want to touch on is overcoming excuses for training. So, you know, we have some some like time crunch, low energy. We're afraid to hit the numbers we have planned or we're just like, I'm not sure, you know, you can think of any number of excuses. Do you have any thoughts, uh, Natasha, around overcoming excuses for training or kind of even pushing yourself in the gym? I think it's really going to depend on the person and their goals. Like for me, I'm a competitive athlete, you know, so like and if I have a plan to do a meet and I have goals for that meet, I need to get my training done you know, and for me, like being able to auto-regulate that training is really helpful. Um, having training be uh, like something that's just regularly scheduled and like a non-negotiable in my life is really helpful because I'm not like figuring out like, okay, well, when am I going to train today? Like, am I going to train? It's like, no, this it's Monday, you're training, you know, it's Tuesday, you're training. Um, it's just what I do, even if I feel good or I don't feel good. Um, I'm just consistent with it and like those things even out over time. And as long as you're consistent, like you're going to get stronger. But if it's like a client of mine, it really depends, you know, because if they're having some trouble with motivating to train, then uh, like, I want to make sure that I'm meeting them where they're at. And I'm not going to be like, you know what, just get psyched, like, just be an athlete, like do it anyway, toughen up because that's not going to work for people. And I feel like that bypasses people's experience um, and how they're feeling. And so for me, depending on the athlete, like if I'm working with a competitive athlete and it's like, okay, well, this is what you do for a living, or this is very important to you. You know what it means to be an athlete. Like maybe they need to be pushed a little bit, but some of my clients actually need to just get a plan for training. That's more reasonable for them. And like, if they're going through like a stressful period um, or, you know, whatever it may be, then my goal as a coach is to, help people feel like they're checking off boxes and making the training, whatever that needs to be so that they can check that box. Because I feel like if people feel like they're checking off boxes and they're able to get something done and stay consistent in some way, then that builds momentum in training and it keeps them going in training. Because I find that if I, my clients feel like they're failing, like they're not doing the plan or they're not, they're not accomplishing training, then that leads to more like dropping off of training, people wanting to quit training, people getting burnt out. So like finding some way to like keep that momentum going and like, okay, what's a, what's a bare minimum 
program for you that we can do right now? Like what's, what's with your schedule? What's going on with your schedule? How can we make this work? Like, can you squat in the morning and then go and do a bench later in the evening? Like when you've got more time, like how do we need to like, you know, formulate this so that you can check those boxes off and like keep some momentum. So I think it depends on the person, you know, like some people need a little tough love. Some people need to be met where they're at and make training doable for them. I completely agree with this. And, you know, Natasha and I are on this, on the same wavelength when it comes to being competitive athletes, you're going to bury me with a barbell. Okay. I love this thing. Um, It's just, it's, it is a part of my life. It's a part of my family's life. It's just what we love to do. That's not everybody. And it really fundamentally comes down to, to me, one, one particular thing. Everyone has to understand why they want to pursue this. If that's for your health, great. If you just want to generally be stronger so you can pick up your puppy, great. If you want to feel better about yourself, awesome. But you have to connect to that why. And then once you connect to that why, you have to accept that being selfish is okay. We demonize being selfish. Like You shouldn't do that. You have to do things. You have to be selfish for yourself and your energy so that you can pour it back into other people. And a lot of the times when, when we have athletes that are failing or missing sessions or, or those sorts of things, there, there's guilt associated with it and there's shame associated with it. And we have to, we have to dig deep and say, okay, like let's reframe some of this stuff to that time, taking it for yourself, connecting to your why, having a guiding light and understanding like, yes, I'm doing this for me, but I'm doing this for me, for everyone else so that we can, we can stay on that path. And it, you know what? This is one of those things. It takes a lot of self-exploration. It takes a lot of honesty. It takes a lot of hard questions and, and either, you know, sitting in your own room and meditating about this stuff or having a conversation like we are right now with somebody to get to the bottom of it. But it has to get done. Otherwise, inconsistency is going to be a, a, a consistency. Yeah, we do not want, want inconsistency to be a, a consistency. And it requires yeah, a lot of a thought of uh, what exactly is the root of the issue here. So something I, I try to do with clients is, uh, let's say, for example, their workout is like, you know, an hour long workout. What I tell them is like, if you're particularly busy, stressed, tired, you know, whatever, like Natasha suggested about doing squats in the morning, bench in the evening, I say split that workout, you know, whatever way you want across the week, across the day, just get it done. So what are your thoughts on like uh, a workout that, um, could be an hour long or it could be six exercises or two exercises, whatever. And clients just kind of like dicing it up whatever way they want to get it done. Like, is it more important that workouts get done each week or that they get done, you know, kind of like a, a particular way, if that makes sense. Are you asking me or John? Natasha, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Go on, Natasha. <laughs> Ladies first. I, I think it's fine if, if people are able to get it done in the week. You know, like as long as we're getting our weekly volume or we're getting things done, it's probably going to be okay. Um, I mean, if you're a really, really high level competitor and like the way it's done might matter a little bit more. But I think for general, in general, like as long as people are getting the things done, it's probably going to be fine. Yeah. And my personal belief is optimal is kind of bullshit. You know what I mean? Like. Yes, I, I would much rather, however they can get it done and feel like they're winning, be be the one that I air towards. Sure, we got a competitive athlete. I'd like for recovery resources and for training effect 
and for these sorts of things to be done in close proximity within this time frame. Absolutely. You know, time dress intervals and certain dynamic effort movements go really, really well together, physiologically speaking. But if they can't get it within that time frame, and the other option is not doing it at all or finding a way to fit it all in, I'm always going to err on finding a way to fit it all in so that they can feel like they're building momentum. Because optimal, honestly, we, we could do that. We could we could put the perfect program together and sleep might still be inconsistent or a stressor might happen or, you know, school gets canceled and the kids are home all day. You know, there's there's always something. Life's never going to stop happening. So I I prefer flexibility. Yeah, I love that idea. When I started doing it myself, my own training, it feels like it opened up a new door for like progress. You know, it's like a new way to stay consistent as opposed to being like cracking the whip saying I have to get it done in a certain amount of time. Um, so just with training then, uh, kind of going backwards here, but like for warm ups and stuff, do you guys use like a specific type of warm up, like in terms of um, sets and reps for like all exercises, for different exercises? Because my thinking is if you have a set warm up, like for example, eight reps at a certain weight, then six reps, then it kind of simplifies the decision-making process because like if you're training three times a week and let's say you're doing nine exercises, for example, right? Uh, or uh, yeah, whatever, nine exercises, that's a lot of warm-ups to be doing and decisions to be making. So if you can have a set warm-up, you can save yourself a lot of guesswork, you know? So what are your thoughts on that? And do you have a, a sort of a template that you use? Um, and John will switch it over to you first. Um, like for me specifically or for my clients? For clients. I, I still don't really have like a template template. Um, if they're going through something specific, like if they're symptomatic, then we may incorporate specific exercises that, that couple with the main movement of the day. But my general guideline for my athletes is to use your warmups to feel out performance. And then you should be at or around your top set weight or, or the prescribed weight within five to six to seven warm-up sets. Because that's what we're going to do on meet day. We're going to do five to seven warm-up sets to get you to your first attempt. So I, I like to keep that relatively consistent. But especially in powerlifting, like there's times where you're going to be a little bit more stiff. And the guide, the general guideline is like, okay, cool. Take a couple more reps early in your warm-up so that we can address that and see if we can shake stuff out. There's other days where you, as soon as you step under the bar, you feel like a million bucks. And it's like, all right, cool. Let's get in, let's get to where we want to get to as quickly as possible, and then get after it and take advantage of this really good feeling. So I don't have like protocols for that. I like my athletes to, to get to the point where they're using it as a diagnostic tool to better understand where they're at entering the session. And then John, just for like your own training, how does it differ for your training? Because I know you squat like 700 pounds or something crazy. So like, <laughs> do you do like 17 warm-up sets or how does that work? No, no. Uh, I made the investment and, and got hundred pound plates. So it's typically bar and then 255 and I go plate until I get up into the sevens. But like, even, even with that, it's, I do the same thing I ask my athletes to do because I, I want them to understand like how that actually operates. So yesterday's a great example. Woke up at 3.30 in the morning because I was in Toronto. 
flew home, got home around 10, worked the rest of the day until I finally got to lift. And is that optimal? No, but I have a meet November 5th. So for my competitive nature, I don't want to push my my last max effort squat day any further down the road to possibly run into a, a closer timeline for November 5th. I'm two weeks out. So I've, I want to be really diligent with that. So yeah, I've been sitting in a plane, in a car, at my desk for most of the day. I took a little, a, a couple extra reps with the bar, a couple of extra reps at 255. And I was like, this is feeling pretty good. And then I just went through my normal stuff. Plate, plate, plate. till I got to 755. Felt good. Called it there. And that was a wrap. I, I like I like simplifying things. I really do. Yeah, that's that's what I'm getting at. It's like we have to. Otherwise, we could have like a rabbit hole of decision making every time with uh, something that is like, you know, a habit. So uh, just one last question. What are you aiming for in the squat on your meeting? Anything between 770 and 800. My last meet, I was really set for eight. And Natasha's going to laugh because we were talking about meets and everything. This is like my 20-something meet, right? Last November. I get under 800 pounds. It's 801. I take a step back and I realize I hadn't latched my lever belt. No. Yep. <laughs> so I got I got a friend in front of me as the judge. I've got a, a girl at the table who's a friend of mine. She's She's screaming at me. And I'm like, well, we're here now. We might as well just go. And I just went for it without my belt latch and just made a rookie mistake type thing. You know what I mean? But that that's where I'd like to be because if I can, the closer I can get to that, the closer I can get to the 2K total that I want. I do want to say one thing really quick, though. You mentioned about like um, simplifying things and people going down a rabbit hole. I am huge on efficiency. Like time management's big. Everybody complains about like n- not having the time to lift. Don't fall down the rabbit hole and come up with some custom 45-minute long. Natasha, how many times have you seen an athlete come in and not touch a barbell for the first hour they're in the gym? All the time. (laughs) What are we doing? Like I couldn't keep with it because it took too long. Yeah, I wonder why. (laughs) What's going on? But anyway, Natasha, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I I agree. Um, I'm a big fan of as trying as as much as you can to standardize your warm up um because it then you don't have to make as many decisions and then also like you can use that to assess you know your readiness that day and like John said if you need some extra warm up sets you can take them um but for the most part like having some sort of like standardized warm up for each of your lifts um, so that you sort of like know what you're going to hit and you've hit those numbers so many times, you know how they should feel too. Um, and you can make some training decisions based off of that as well. So, Yeah. They can guide, uh, that, that day session. Is it possible to use the warm up as like, uh, a, a kind of a method of progression? So for example, um, you, you start at a higher weight, for example, or like you work up to a higher weight. And that's like a set sort of template. And that's like what you use each time to gauge, like, you know, let's just say your bench is 225. And instead of starting with like 135, you start with like 140 or 145. And you're like, you finish at like, I don't know, let's just say 190 or something. That's like um, what you use to warm up with. Those those kind of, you know, uh, low weights and high weights, um, 
to to guide your readiness? Is that like a way to kind of progress strength? Because at some point, your last warm up set, I kind of feel like it's almost the line between being a warm up and training is is very kind of blurred. So it's kind of like it seems like there's a bit of an opportunity there to, uh, I guess, progress really. I wouldn't say that I specifically use that as a way to progress. Um, I think that like your warm ups might potentially count as some of the volume in your workout, like the heavier ones maybe, but I'm not necessarily like having someone start heavier. Like I'm always going to start with an empty bar personally and like with most of my clients. And then, you know, we can make bigger jumps if we're going heavier that day or make different jumps if we're going heavier that day. And maybe like, some of those warm-ups are going to be, you know, for going up to like RPE eight or even nine, like maybe the RPE six and seven sets are going to be con- like still your warm-up, but like probably hard enough to contribute to the workout as well or workout volume as well. Like, you know, sometimes that'll happen, but I'm not specifically using the warm-up as a way to get stronger, I guess. Yeah. I've, I've never played with anything like that. Um, for me, I really, I really don't like the micromanaged plates either. So it's like, what's the next logical, easy progression with plates? Like my wife has micros over here. We could, we could get all the way down to like half pound, quarter pound on each side. But like that, that now we start mincing details. I'd much rather dial that in at the higher weight. I'd much rather dial that in when she's hitting, you know, 160 and it looks smooth. 165 last week for a top set just wasn't all the way there. Okay, let's go 162. Let's go 163 and 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 really start to fine tune. I'd much rather do that there than in the warm up pieces, um, especially just from an ease of execution because that then we can get into like nitty gritty of like, well, my warm up was five pounds heavier on the way up this time. Like I could see that as being progress, but did it actually result in the strength goal that I wanted? I don't know. Yeah, I feel as though uh, it's in the training where you can gauge progress and get into the warm up. It's just too technical, and even like on a session by session basis, your warm up could change depending on how you feel. So it's going to be so hard to track that. But um, tracking the, the working sets is the best way to go. So, um, what are what are some of uh, the do's and don'ts you would recommend for doing like powerlifting and resistance training and doing other sports to progressing both you know i'm trying to run right now and i'm trying to uh get my squat up and uh, i know you guys do a little bit of work outside the gym as well especially like the climbing so how can you uh do both but not have them kind of like you know run counter to each other and natasha let's hear what you think yeah that's something i i i do personally for myself sometimes and i work with like most of my clients on that as well so i think um if people are, for, for first of all, like most of my clients are using strength training as a way to just build a better athletic base for climbing. So it doesn't have to be that complicated. It doesn't need to be a ton of training. Like we can usually pretty easily fit that in for most people. And most of the clients that I work with are like sort of novices when it comes to strength training. So it really doesn't take much. Um, if people are more interested in like being a hybrid athlete where they 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 got bit a little bit by the strength training or powerlifting bug and they still like climbing and want to do that um, we can get people to where they can do both it's just sort of a progression so 
starting off with like less strength training and slowly building up the number of sessions that we're doing um, or taking away a climbing session so we can fit in another strength session and figuring out how to fit that other climbing practice somewhere else. Um, it's really easy with climbing if someone is technically good at climbing because the strength training keeps you like really strong and fit for climbing. Like I've been climbing for 23 years. I can just not climb for weeks. And then I can jump back into the gym and I feel like pretty fine strength wise because powerlifting keeps me so strong. Like it just doesn't matter. Um, and I have the technique from years and years of practice for climbing that like that doesn't generally get rusty for me either. So the, the longer someone's climbed, the more technically skilled they are, the more the, the strength training can kind of carry them as well. Um, and we don't have to do as much hard climbing. We can do more um, climbing that challenges them technically to work on that aspect because the strength training is taking care of that. Um, but for a lot of my clients who want to do both, it's just about slowly getting them to where they can do the volume and frequency that we want them to do for both sports. And then for, and sometimes it means compromising. Um, like for me personally, I, this meet was important for me and I didn't care that much about my climbing performance during this time. So I actually stopped climbing for like two months just to focus on this meet. Um, and I'm fine with that. Like, I know that like when I jump back into climbing, I'm not going to be at like my peak performance for climbing, but I know I can easily get back there if I want to. Um, and so sometimes if you're worried about like peak performance in one or the other, it just means compromising a little bit somewhere. Um, and you can always build back up later if you want to. Love when we have these discussions and we like uncover a principle because I'm going to go from the other end of the spectrum where I'm taking power lifters. I'm taking like strength athletes that now all of a sudden say, well, I want to run or I want to go play flag football or I want to go do X, Y, Z. And the answer is actually the same. Natasha mentioned in there like, okay, cool. I start with these climbers. The dose for strength training ends up being like really small. And where I see lifters kind of make an error when it comes to trying to incorporate this stuff is they go and they say, okay, well, I'm going to do my powerlifting program. And then I'm going to plug in like this beginner marathon program, or like, I'm going to go in and, and go, go find a, a sprint triathlon program. And I'm just going to plug that in when in reality, no offense to anybody out there, but you probably should start with a couch to 5k program. You should, you probably should start with the lowest volume possible of running and then build that up slowly over, over time while keeping your powerlifting training static, while keeping that normal. So then we can adapt. The problem is they try to take two things and marry them together that are already like intermediate. So it really takes a small dose. And from a health perspective for, for lifters, it takes a small dose to drastically increase cardiovascular health and then start to build that capacity. I'm talking like half a mile. Like run half a mile and then walk another one. And you, like, that's a starting point. Don't immediately go and try to run a 5K. But that's where everybody starts. Yeah, it's it's funny. I think of like the, a similar question, like how do you, you know, have a career and have like a family life or do anything simultaneously? And it's like, you just, you don't do them at the exact same time. You don't try and do like, you know, your heavy squats and then like run and then do a heavy squat. And run. You just pivot between them. So um it can be done. It's just about like having that right program, like uh, no, knowing your ability level and knowing where you're at and then like starting there, not having this ego of like, you know, I'm a great powerlifter. So I'm going to, you know, jump right into the deep end 
with the the running. Um, Everybody, everybody's back to wanting to be Alex Viata again, and they, they see those old videos of him deadlifting six hundred pounds and then immediately hopping on a bike and biking a hundred miles. And it's like he he at that time was at at a peak. He worked a long time to get there. Like you gotta you gotta look at the road work first that was done to build it. Yeah, if you're just looking at the end product, you're going to miss out on all the reps that he put in and the hard sessions and stuff. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and it's funny. I'm just thinking of myself and how, like, just being in the gym, kind of like to your point, Natasha, that, like, it feels like you can almost do any uh, athletic or sporting uh, task with a little bit of training versus, you know, if you're doing one isolated sport, it's quite hard to pivot. So I feel as though the gym resistance training it just it just makes uh, anything else you do athletic wise after so much easier, um, and it just makes me think of the one kind of concern I would have is like rates of injury. So let's say for example somebody does a sport outside the gym, does resistance training or climbing or flag football or whatever. Is there a higher rate of injury in the sport you do because you do resistance training, or is there any connection there? Do you think, or does it actually lower the rate of injury? What's what's the effect on injuries? I would probably argue that <laughs> with some of the evidence that we have, it's probably going to lower your risk of injury, if anything. Um, but I, you know, it's hard to predict injury. Also, um, it's hard to control. People get injured even when everything is seemingly perfect. Um, but you know, being stronger, being more durable, having more tissue capacity and tissue tolerance is only going to help you. So if you can dose your strength training correctly. I would argue that, like, if anything, it's going to help reduce your risk of getting injured, hopefully. I would agree. Um, specific data on this, we don't have a ton of. Uh, and there's still, like, a, a few other things out there. Uh, you know, we have found cardiovascular health to be protective against injury. So that incorporating that for lifters seems to be beneficial. To what degree? We're not entirely sure. Like, how much cardiovascular health? How much cardiovascular uh like running and, and those sorts of things can, can be protective. Don't know. Um, you can look in and try to correlate, especially like youth sport development research when it comes to a wide breadth of sport experience tends to decrease injury risk in individuals, especially because of like repeated movement patterns and, and all those other things. So it seems like they have a variety of options of movement. I want to make that super, super clear for the listeners. It's not that repetitive movement is the injurious factor. It's that they lack options when they're confronted with a task of movement variability. Like really good athletes can move in a bunch of different ways successfully. Athletes you have hyper-specialized early get locked in and they lose optionality really, really fast. So, you know, it's really cool, Natasha, you brought out like the technical climbing aspects that you can do because all she's doing is is giving them all these movement options that they can now display their strength on the wall. If they didn't do that, they don't have those movement options. And now we put ourselves in positions we may not be used to. So that would be kind of my argument behind it. Do we have direct data to correlate it? No, but I would argue that doing multi like multiple different things, especially throughout a year's course, is going to be protective. Yeah, that leads me to the question I'm thinking of is like, is it fair to assume that a, a, a more well-rounded athlete is more resilient than a single sport athlete? So let's say someone just does climbing or they just do running 
um, or even they just do resistance training. That's their only form of like activity. The person who does two is generally going to be more resilient, especially when it comes to in- injury. What are your thoughts on that? Go ahead, Natasha. I mean, uh, that's the theory, but like John mentioned, some of that research is like on youth sports, you know, and I don't know if we have like the very specific data on that for all sports, but if we want to make some generalizations, I think that would be fair to postulate for sure. And then shout out to, I hope I don't slay his last name, uh, Franco Impelazari, who did a ton of research uh, against Tim Gabbett, honestly, in in uh, total load and, and load management type strategies. And one of the things they really found is chronic high load uh, of, of exercise ends up being protective. And strategic spikes in workload tends to be protective. So I would lean kind of on that and try to correlate that research with it. As opposed to, I, I, if I were to risk profile this myself, a single sport athlete that only participates in sports in the season that is dictated by that sport and does nothing else through the season would probably be the person that I'd be like, you probably should do stuff all year long. At least something that's not your sport that's like strength training. If we have a single sport athlete that is competitive throughout the year and doing high level activity throughout the year, I'm probably going to put them at a, a lower risk. If you have a three sport athlete, I'm going to use a high school, a three sport athlete that's all in, in the summer hitting the weight room, you're going to be in a pretty good spot. Is shit going to happen? Yeah, because injury rates bring in concussion and all those other things that we're talking about sport. And I mean, my brother's a climber. He's fallen and hit his head a couple of times. So like those things can still happen, but I would like to see chronic workload over the year as an indicator. So keep doing something. Yeah. Stay ready. Uh, don't try and ramp up and get ready. Um, so that's it. That's all we have for today. Uh, John and Natasha, is there any final messages you want to wrap up with? Maybe John, you're me. November 5th. It's uh, a night meet. Freaks come Ooh. out at night. Uh, I'll night be out there at night meet 6 p.m. I am super stoked. Uh, I'll be lifting with some really close friends. Uh, if anybody is familiar familiar with Travis Rogers, it's going to be his first meet back. Papa Bear Rogers, one of the strongest men on the planet, 198 pounds from a bilateral quad tendon rupture. So, uh, kind of an emotional moment for a lot of us that are that are close to him. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. So, check it out. Uh, there should be a live stream of it through WRPF and. Uh, yeah, I can't wait. And that's uh, a week and a half away. That right? is. It is. Right. November 5th. <laughs> the nerves are starting to hit. You know all about that, Natasha. It doesn't matter how many of these things you do. You still still get a little nervous. Totally. Uh, well, good luck. Thank you. Yeah. I have a, a half marathon on the 6th, on Sunday the 6th. So I'll still be trying to squat a little bit, but I'll obviously be tapering down. And I have tapered down a lot so that I can do both. Um, Natasha, do you have anything coming up or anything you want to mention? Uh, I signed up for my next meet March 11th, so 20 weeks out, I think. <laughs> that's the one you're doing, Ross, remember? <laughs> Apparently so. That's the one you're doing. 20 weeks out. 20 weeks out, right. <laughs> yeah, um, I'll start uh, taping for it. Or <laughs> just working for it, so I'll put it in the calendar. Uh, all right. 
Let's go. Let's do this again. Thanks very much, guys. Uh, yeah, that is it.